Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. series called Encounter, and we're looking at what happens when ordinary people encounter an extraordinary God. And um, I love I love the series because I love encounters with God, and I've had a bunch of random encounters with God in different places. And I don't know if you're if you're like me. Um, let's just see how many of us have had like a significant moment with God, like a prayer moment. And, and not it's not everyone, but I just want to see. Yeah, okay, there's a lot of us. It's good. Um, but I was reminded last week. Last week I got to pray for a lady who came forward in our church, and I had what, what we would call like a word of knowledge or a prophetic word um, for this person, and she was wrecked. And by wrecked, I mean she was shaking. She was visibly moved by the Holy Spirit um, because she came forward for prayer, but God met this other need in her life, recognizing like kind of the, the biggest thing that's, that she's facing. And I didn't know her from anywhere, um, but I've seen this so many times. It's what happens when the people of God participate in the things of the Spirit together. God will use his gifts to build up his church. And how he does that is not through websites or building campaigns. He does that through the people of God being energized and empowered by the Spirit uh, to uh, edify one another, um, to, to use words of knowledge, prophecy, healing, all those things for the, for the, for the church to be built up. And I was, uh, she, she came up after, afterwards and we talked about this word and I realized, you know, part of the, the journey of faith is taking sometimes the words of knowledge, the prophetic, the encounters, and not, um, it's not always like, I guess my, what I told her was when we have these massive God encounters in our lives, like he reveals the mysteries of our heart, the thing that we don't want to do immediately is operate heavy machinery. Does that make sense? Like, what, see, this is the danger of the charismatic movement. We hear from the Lord alone in isolation, and we don't allow the community of faith, we don't allow the scriptures, we don't allow people that we're walking with to speak into our lives about those things. We just say, oh, God told me, so I'm gonna do it. Now, that's, we, ca- we gotta learn how to operate, God told me I'm gonna do it, with all the other things. Does that make sense? I just wanna anchor that today and just say, hey, sometimes we can have lots of encounters. So today I wanna talk about the Christian life as a journey. Okay, I want to talk about the theme, the Christian life as a journey. And what we're going to look at is the biography of Peter. Does that sound cool? So we're going to look at these random encounters with Peter's, Peter, and then I'm just going to make some observations. So if you don't like the Bible, you're going to hate this sermon. Um, <clears throat> if you love the Bible, you're going to be like, gosh, I just want Darren to talk all like this every week. Because we're going to read a bunch of scripture together. And then we're, going to, we're just going to talk about some observations about the Christian life as a journey. So let's just jump into Acts chapter 3. I want to start at the end at the moment of heroic faith in Peter's life, okay? So I love this story because I know where we're gonna go, but I love starting here because you're gonna be like, of course, that's, that's, that's Peter. Peter chapter, or Peter, um, Acts chapter three. And we're gonna, we're gonna look at Peter's kind of heroic moment and, I'll just, and then we'll go back in, in time, okay? So Acts chapter three, verse one. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Real quick, context for each of these stories. One, this is after Jesus died and raised from the dead, after the Holy Spirit fell on the church and commissions uh, his church to be his witnesses. So this is after that. So this is Peter's full of the Holy Spirit. It says this, verse two. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, 
where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Um, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I, have, I, I, uh, what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went uh, with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized, uh, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder <coughs> and amazement at what had happened. Keep going, verse 14. So Peter now talks to the crowd. The crowd sees what happens. They're amazed. And then he's, he's like, are you surprised? And then they start wondering about the power that had done this. And he says this in verse uh, four, uh, 14. He says, um, he speaks to the crowd. This is Peter. You disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from, from the dead. If you thought my sermon was a little hard last week, uh, just be thankful I wasn't saying this to you, right? Look, he's saying to this crowd, talk about seeker sensitive. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Oh, I love this. We are witnesses to this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. I mean, do you, what? This is, this is amazing, right? Like, talk about faith and courage and, and strength. But then Peter's brought before the Sanhedrin court, the same court that crucified Jesus. And look at what happens. Verse 12. He talks to the court. Um, do I want to go verse 12? Verse 9. He says, Peter talks to, these are like the PhDs. These are the smartest people. These are the people in power. These are the people that have this, you know, can say be, uh, be killed. They rule Israel, essentially. And he says, Peter says to them, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked, how is he healed? Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before, uh, before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no, one, no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So I love this story. I love this story because it's like, the ultimate stick it to the man story, right? Like, like it's, it's the smartest, the people in power, and these are unschooled, ordinary dudes. And they're debating in the public space the risen Jesus. And there he is, Peter, the hero of faith. <clears throat> He's doing exactly what Jesus would have done in that moment. Hey, hey man, walk. And the guy walks. 
We just talked about the paralytic and the leper and the power that Jesus had through the Spirit. And now uh, Peter, this ordinary guy, uneducated, has the same power to do the same things that Jesus was doing through the same Spirit. And then it says that he, uh, he has this courageous faith to proclaim to a crowd that they killed the author of life. I mean, do you think this is bold? What would you say? Courageous Bold, strong, the rock. Peter is the rock. You with me? The problem with the story and the problem with most of us in the way we read scripture is that we often take all of the humanity out of the divine stories. You see, I want to ask the question, how did Peter get there? How did he get to chapter three of Acts? And, and we, we actually know how he got there. So I want to tell you the story of how Peter gets there, because that story of heroic faith was built over a long period of time, okay? And I wanna show you what's included in this man's journey, because it will give us inspiration. Are you with me? Have you heard of the 10,000 hour rule? Malcolm Gladwell writes about this in his book, The Outliers. It's a theory based on Anders Ericsson. And it's basically a study of all these people who are great um, or have an, uh, uh, a significant amount of success in life. And what the 10,000 hour rule describes is basically how those people got there is not by sheer talent, but by an enormous amount of discipline and time. So in the book, uh, Outliers, there's a couple of examples, lots of examples, but he looks particularly at a guy named Bill Gates. You ever heard of him? And the band, the Beatles, some UK British band, um, but the Beatles and Bill Gates. Now, what's interesting is you think these are just randomly successful people or bands or a, a group of people, but what Malcolm Gladwell explains is that Bill Gates had access to a computer at a high school he lived by in the year 1968. And by the age of 13, Bill Gates had already spent over 10,000 hours programming a computer in the 60s. That gave him a significant head start to the rest of the people who didn't even know what a computer was. 10,000 hours. The Beatles, it says, between the, the years 1960 and 1964, the Beatles had performed over 1,200 times in Hamburg, Germany. And by the time they came back to England, they had spent over 10,000 hours perfecting their sound and performance. And they had a sound unlike anyone else. It's because they practiced. LeBron James, the king, um, <coughs> he, he's different kind of king. He's, he, he's, he's a beast on the, on the back. If you've seen him play basketball, he is remarkable. He's, he's a talented man. He's built a certain way. But that man has practiced a lot. He's practiced so much so that he can shoot the game-winning shot every time. And sometimes he's missed, but that's why he's LeBron James. It's not because he woke up one day and got really good at basketball. It's because of hard work and discipline, 10,000 hours. Now, let's go back to faith. Behind the heroes of faith throughout history, there are men and women who have been committed to Jesus in their everyday ordinary life along the way. Heroic faith is almost always a result of a consistent journey towards Christ, and it includes failure, pain, success, brokenness, rebuke, and all sorts of things along the way. So let's go back and let's just look at Peter's journey because I want to show you Peter because if he becomes a hero to you, I want you to see his life as so ordinary for so many other things. You with me? 
Mark chapter 1. So go to Mark. We're going to look at a bunch of verses real quick. <coughs> Mark chapter 1, verse 16. It says this. Um, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew. Simon is Peter. Jesus will give him the name Peter later on um, in the Gospels. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So uh, Peter is a fisherman. And what, we, what that means about Peter in the first century context is this. Rabbis in the first century only selected the best of the best of the best to be disciples, okay? So you need to know this, that when you look at, at Jesus calling his disciples, he wasn't selecting the best of the best of the best. He was selecting ordinary men and women who were doing ordinary things. Peter was a fisherman. That means he wasn't selected in a young, young age to be a disciple. He didn't make the cut. Are you with me? So Peter drops his nets. This is a significant observation. We need to just say, why did Peter drop his nets? Oh, because Jesus was white and had a halo behind him in the Middle East. That's not the case. <laughs> he didn't have blue eyes and blonde hair. He didn't. <laughs> Just make sure we're clear on that. It's not because, oh my gosh, he's glowing with God. He's, he's God. No, that's, he didn't have a clue. And every single gospel writer in Mark's gospel, he doesn't know who Jesus is until chapter 8. He's following Jesus because a rabbi said, you can be my disciple. And that's a significant thing. So Peter drops his nets. Now for Peter, the nets, they represent his livelihood. They, they represent his vocation, his calling, his purpose, his tradition, his family, his heritage, his security, his 401k, his comfort. Th that's the net. So Peter... What, why does Peter drop his nets? Well, he acts before he thinks. He's an all-in kind of guy, right? You have some of these friends. They're like, they, they see something pop up on YouTube and then they buy in and they're on this new diet kick. And all of a sudden, they're wearing Lululemon and they're working out six days a week telling you all about CrossFit. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Peter's like that, right? Peter is this guy and we see it. Throughout the story, it's absolutely, so he drops his nets to follow Jesus. He reveals something unique, though. One thing that I just want to highlight, even if he gets other things wrong, Peter reorders his life around Jesus. You see, what we do today is we try to add Jesus onto our life like an accessory we could take off and on when it's convenient. Right? Peter shows us that apprenticeship to Jesus, discipleship to Jesus, to be a Christian is to reorder your life, not your spiritual life, your finances, your home, your parenting, your diet, your exercise routine, the way you drive to work, the way you are at work, the way you act at school, the way you think about things, the way you text, the way you respond to those crit critics on Facebook, the way you watch, what you watch, what you live. This is what Jesus comes to do, to reorder our life. To, to live in the way we were intended to live in the first place. Shalom. You with me? Okay, Mark 6. Go to Mark chapter 6, uh, verse 6. So Peter doesn't know who he is yet, <clears throat> but check this out. Uh, verse 6 
of chapter six, or verse seven of chapter six, it says, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if uh, any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake off the dust. Um, brush your shoulders off. Then um, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. So what, is, what does Peter do a couple chapters later? He's called to be a disciple. And guess what? He goes out and he does the things of Jesus. Right there, we see in the scriptures, chapter six, he's doing the things that Jesus would do. How cool is that? So that's, that's fascinating. Math, go to Matthew um, chapter 16. So if you're in Mark, turn left. First book of the New Testament. Um, New Testament begins with Matthew, Matthew 16. <clears throat> We're gonna look at verse 15. And in this passage, so it's later on in the story of Peter, he's following Jesus for a little bit, watching Jesus heal and preach. Then Jesus sends him out and he preaches and heals. He comes back and talks about how people are healed. Peter, uh, Jesus debriefs this with Peter. They see some other stuff. And then we get to chapter 16 and check out what happens in 16 verse, uh, we'll look at verse uh, 16 of chapter 16. So Simon Peter is asked by Jesus, who do people say you I am? And Peter responds, he says, um, he's, Jesus says, but what about you, Peter? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is the first time in the scriptures that the identity of Jesus is, is um, revealed or explained from followers. It's only been explained up until this point by demon-possessed people, all right? So it's significant. Jesus replies, so he gets it right. You are the Messiah. Look at what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you and by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. You've got spiritual download. You got it right. This, I know it's not you, right? That's what he's like. You couldn't have got this on your own. You got some help, okay? <clears throat> but let's, look at what he says. I, and I tell you that you are Peter, and the, uh, on this rock I will build my church, on this confession that you are the Messiah, the living God. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone about that he was the Messiah. So there he is. Like if you were with the other 11 dudes, if that was me, number one strength finder is competition, I would be hashtag winning, right? Like the 11 guys that didn't get that he's, I was the first one to get Peter. I'm the first one to get that he's the Messiah. Now, Jesus, the Messiah, saying, on you, I'm going to build my church. I'll be walking around prideful. Would you agree? I got it right. Spiritually divine. Download from the Father. I am the rock. What's your name? Thomas, you go doubt some more. You know, I, that's what I would do. <laughs> I'm going to be known as the rock. You know, it's like, yes. Sometimes you get it right, but look at the very next story. This is hilarious. So, they, so Jesus, hey, you get that on the Messiah. Don't tell anyone about it. Now I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Here's the Messiah's mission, okay? From that time on, Jesus began explaining to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things in the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin. 
and that he must be killed. And on the third day, he must be raised to life. Peter took him aside as the newly founded leader, the rock, and began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to the rock and said, get behind me, Satan. How fast did that go? Rock, Satan. This is comical. This is the humanity, right, of following Jesus. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in, the mind, uh, you do not have in mind the concerns of God. One minute downloaded from the Father in heaven, blessed you are. The next, you, have, you don't have the mind of God, you are, but merely human concerns. Do you see this? Is this funny? Like sometimes we get it and sometimes we just miss it. All in the same story for Peter. He's the guy that will say the right thing at one moment and say the wrong thing at the next moment. He'll be the guy um, that pulls out the sword as, as the people come to arrest him and he chops off his ear and Jesus is like, are you kidding me? I've been telling you we're gonna love each other. You take out your, like puts his ear back on the guy's head. That's in the story. He's like, come on, Peter, what are you doing? Matthew uh, chapter, okay, let's go, let's just go to Mark chapter 14. Go back to Mark, Mark 14. This is good, right? It's giving you a little hope. You're like, gosh, thank God I'm not as bad as Peter. It just gets worse. So then, then Jesus, at the last moment with his disciples, he's eating this meal, the, the, the Lord's Supper. And, and then he says, verse 27 of chapter 14, You'll, you will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And then Peter declared, even if... If all, all the 11 dudes fall away, I will not. I'm not going to fail you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows, twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted empathetically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same thing. I'm never going to fail you, Jesus. And then go to Luke chapter 22. The same night, verse 54, Peter is, or Jesus is arrested. It says, Then seizing Jesus, they led him away, took him to the house of the high priest with the Sanhedrin court. Peter followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. He's got an accent. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the cock crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the last story in Luke's gospel before the resurrection. I'll never disown you to in the moment of his friend's most vulnerable and weakest time, he denies him three times. He fails Jesus. He fails. He denies. I never knew him. And he weeps. And so what we see 
In the book of, of Luke, in Matthew, in Mark in particular, as well as John, is this picture of Peter before the book of Acts. And the picture is a guy who will say one thing and do another. He gets it right and sometimes he doesn't. He, said, he affirms Jesus, misses the point, and gets rebuked by Jesus and tries to rebuke Jesus himself. He denies Jesus. Peter is an imperfect disciple who continually is used by God for his purposes. Can I get an amen? Now what happens is between this story and Acts chapter 3 is some minor things. Peter fails and weeps bitterly. And in the book of John, what we see is Jesus comes to him and doesn't rebuke Peter with, you failure, I knew you would blow it. He simply says, do you love me? And he restores Peter rather than rebuke him. And then Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter two, it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit and a bunch of onlookers are like, hey, they're just drunk on wine. And Peter stands up. The last thing we heard about Peter in the gospel of Luke, the same author of Luke as the author of Acts, is that Peter sat down with the accusers. And then the next image is him being filled with the Spirit, standing up and proclaiming to the crowd, Jesus is alive and well. And then Acts 3 comes on, and the rest is history. Heroic faith, courage, boldness, strength. Never again will he deny the risen Messiah. A couple of observations about the rock. <laughs> a couple of observations about the Christian life as a journey. Number one. Our failures can become the foundation of our future. Our, you could say our failures be, can become the foundation of our future faith. One of the things that I've seen in my own life, and this is just my personal experience that I've talked about, is at 27, I had a, a bit of a burnout in ministry. A bit was, I, I was burnt out. I was exhausted. I was sick. I was devastated. I didn't have healthy rhythms. I have given more to the church than I did to my own, my own wife. I didn't have kids at the time. Um, I was wrecked. That failure was challenged by a community. My team, our elders, our board um, gave me a respite. They let me walk through that. They let me change my schedule. They challenged that I should live out the rhythms of grace and not burn out of ministry again. And as a result of that failure, I find myself talking to all these pastors all the time, talking about, are you Sabbathing? Are you resting? Are, how's your relationship with your spouse? How's your relationship with the kids? All I do nowadays with my leaders is talk about living out of a place of centeredness, centeredness with Jesus. Why? Because I failed at it before. Can anyone relate to this? Like you look at all these famous people, Elon Musk and Gates and LeBron James and Michael Jordan and uh, 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 Steve Jobs, all these success stories. They all talk about their failures, not being failures, but opportunities for growth. And in the church world, we often see when we fail, we're not committed to relationship to help restore people back into ministry. And I see it the other way around, that when we press in, when we actually do the hard work, those, that failure becomes, becomes our future. It's connected to number two. Are you with me on this? It's just another observation that I see through Peter. I wanted to share this one mostly for us, is our greatest pain can become the platform for ministering to others. I mean, think about this. Peter denies Jesus at the moment. Jesus needed somebody to say, no, he's the Messiah. And Peter fails miserably. 
But that failure, that denial that led to him weeping and, and dealing with all sorts of pain, he had to wrestle with what do I believe, led to him becoming the kind of person that would stand in front of the Sanhedrin and say, you killed the author of life. Do you realize that? It wasn't just this moment, oh, the spirit just dropped this courage. Peter had been working out that thing. I, I bet you when he was depressed after Jesus was, dis, uh, uh, after Jesus was killed, that those few days in between his resurrection, I, I bet you Peter was weeping hysterically, uncontrollably. And I bet you when Mary comes and says, the tomb is empty, he was like, oh crap. He takes off running, right? He wants to get there first and he sees it and then he gets restored. And then he starts processing what he had to deal with. And then never again would he allow that failure to, be defined, to define his destiny. Instead, it became the platform for all future conversations. He will, be, he will become the kind of person that will be walking and his shadow will heal sick people in Jerusalem. That's an axe. They will, oh, Peter's coming. They'll lay out sick people just so the shadow of Peter would, that's crazy. Peter's the same guy that denied Jesus, the same guy that was, called, um, to, that was told by Jesus to get behind me, Satan. Satan, are you with me? Yeah. Our pain can become the platform for ministering to others. Suffering is promised in our following of Jesus. And, uh, and I just see now that oftentimes that what we need to just examine in our lives in our discipleship is the pain. Because unprocessed pain will never become a platform for ministry. But if we process it, if we work through it, it can become a, a tool to ministering to others. Are you with me? Hey, Anessa, are you, can I talk about you for a second? I didn't ask for permission. I'll bless you in this conversation. Can I? Anessa is a dear friend of mine and my wife's and, and her husband, Al, uh, Alan, and they are uh, founding elders at our church. But Anessa is somebody who, if you get to know her, many of you know her, has a crazy life story. It's one of those life stories that doesn't make sense. And I know she'll share it sometime. Can I share some of it real quick? Do you mind? Homeless, drug addict, alcoholic. I mean, you're talking like the worst kinds of pain. Exponential. How long have you been sober, Anessa? 30 years this year, sober. Now, she can talk about that stuff, but there's current stuff that, that the grief is like this, it seems like this endless bottomless pit. Would you agree with me, Anessa? I'm just, now I'm telling your story. But you know what's so powerful about Anessa? She just shows up when she doesn't feel like it for others. Like she literally will just meet with women all the time as she's carrying this grief and this pain. And what she doesn't realize, and she probably realizes it now, is that God has been forming her for such a time as this to minister to men and women from this place of depth and strength. Because the pain, even some of it is being processed now. She doesn't realize how much is there, but there's other pain that has, has become a tool for, for hope and glory for others. It's giving people hope that she can say, no, I, I know what that feels like. I've been there too. And she's, she's not giving permission for people to check out and isolate. She shows up even when it's hard. And that's the power of allowing our pain to be exposed in a committed community, in a covenantal community for the sake of ministering to others. Some of you are hiding your pain 
thinking that it's because you, you're hiding, you're full of shame, you're full of despair. I, if, I, if I share that the struggles I'm having in our marriage with others, people will judge us. Rather than saying, actually, this is a time where the community can strengthen you, allow the pain to be processed in community, because one day what's gonna happen is your marriage will become a strength for others. I actually believe that right now for our church. I think one of the words that I have for us is for those of you that are struggling in marriage, to fight for your marriage, to have a long-term view so that 10 years from now, you're in a community, a church community like the garden or at the garden, literally ministering out of your marriage. And you could say, actually, we almost got divorced. We almost separated. You sh I should tell you about what my husband did and the pain that he caused and the grief and the betrayal, but I can tell you about the resurrected Christ in my marriage, the restoration. Let me show you my scars so that you may be healed. That's what it means to allow your pain to become a platform to ministering to others. See, this is how you develop heroic faith when you see your, the Christian life as a journey not as this just a one-time encounter. How many encounters did Peter have with Jesus? A ton. So many. Peter's the guy that got out of the boat and walked on water for a little bit. And everyone else could be like, oh, he's the guy that didn't have faith and sank. No, he's the only one that got out of the boat. Are you with me? Third, our weaknesses can become the gateway to greater strength. Our weaknesses can become the greater, uh, the gateway to greater strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, uh, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, Therefore I will, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Um, I think one of the things that we should think through in our culture of success and strength and, is to examine our weaknesses and allow Christ to enter into those places and see his, his power within us. And I, I believe this is one of the things that, that um, Peter is modeling in his discipleship, that there were areas that he failed at, he missed, he got wrong, um, but he allowed those things to, become, to, to follow through and allow the Spirit to work in him so that he could operate from a place of strength. I love that Paul will give a list of all the things, that, all the sufferings as his criteria for being an apostle. Rather than, oh, you know, I preached this crowd, I wrote this book, I have this big of a church, blah, blah, blah. It's, I was shipwrecked, I was beaten, I was stoned to death, I've been starved. Like, that, that's how Paul sees it. Because in that weakness, Christ is made more powerful and glorified. And, and, it, and just in case you're in a rap battle, this is the strat strategy to win a rap battle. It's so true, though. I was thinking, about, I watched it last night, the last scene of uh, Eight Mile. Like, this is it, right? <laughs> like, think about it. Like, <clears throat> what are, they, are, you, are you afraid about what they're going to say? And he's like, what? And then Eminem as B-Rabbit raps uh, in the last championship battle, and he, and he disarms his opponent by exposing all of his weaknesses to his opponent. And when you expose your weaknesses in a courageous, vulnerable way, you disarm the accuser. Because he's going to say you're not good enough or you're a failure. And you can say, no, in Christ, I'm victorious. I'm more than enough. I'm more than a conqueror. I've been raised to life. Yes, this thing is causing some conflict. But Jesus is still working out his best in me because I'm unfinished. But he has the final say. You're the father of lies. All, everything you say against me, I know is a lie. 
This is how you win rap battles, and this is how you... <laughs> and this is how you learn to operate from a place of strength by exposing in a vulnerable way your weaknesses in a covenantal community because Christ will use that for his purposes. You with me? Okay, a couple of closing thoughts, and this is really helpful for me. This is a big moment for our church. You ready for this next one? Point number four, everyone is on their own unique journey. Everyone here and outside these walls are on their own unique journey. Don't compare yourself to someone else's highlight reel. Don't compare your blooper and outtakes to someone else's highlight reel. And don't force your highlight reel on someone else's journey. Be gracious to one another. I really want to speak to this. We all have grace given to us uniquely. And my grace is not the same as your grace. Okay? God has given me a unique journey that's different than yours. And my job is not to impose my journey on yours. Some of you got a little upset because I was kind of coming down last week about serve day. Anyone want to just confess that right now? I have some friends in the room that were like, uh, that were, I hated it. And uh, I love it. And I'm like, but, but you got to hear this. This wasn't for you. Um, the, you're serving. You're giving so much of your time. This is to light a fire on so many of us that are complacent. And I said or last week that, that that conviction was for my own life. But we, we are all on a unique journey and we need to respect and honor each other's journey. Some of you have had great revelation of what God's like and how to follow him. That doesn't mean you know what's best for your brother or sister in your house church that's learning life in Christ. Let us not judge one another. Let us be gracious to one another and encourage each other, lift each other up. Let us not have a sarcastic or condemning tone. Let's be the grace. Let's be the, the, the encourager. Let's lift each other up. All right, are you with me? Let's stop forcing our own journey on each other. Pete Scazzaro says this. I'm just gonna run through these things. And this was enlightening for me. Pete Scazzaro has this list of six stages or seasons of faith. And I just wanna give this as information so you can walk away going, hey, I wonder what season I'm in. And there's six of them. I'm just gonna run through them rather quickly. Stage one is life-changing awareness of God. And this stage, um, whether in childhood or adulthood, it's the beginning of the journey with Christ as we become aware of his reality. So we realize our need for mercy and we begin a relationship with God. Stage two, he calls discipleship. This stage is characterized by learning about God and what it means to follow Jesus. We become a part of a Christian community and we begin to get rooted in the disciplines of faith. Stage three is the active life. This is described, described as the doing stage. We get involved. We actively work for God, serving him and other people. We take responsibility by bringing our unique talent, strengths, gifts to serve Christ and others. And then there's stage four. He calls it the wall and the journey inward. And I think this is gonna give language to some of you that are in this stage. At some point in your faith, you will hit a wall. At, for Peter, I think it, there are a couple of walls, but one of them is when he denies Jesus. He hits a wall, and he must move beyond his superficial image of who Jesus is and surrender to the image that Jesus is the suffering Messiah who must die on the cross. That wall leads you to an inward journey, 
And they're both connected. The wall compels us into the journey inward. And in some cases, the journey inward eventually leads us to the wall. But most importantly, it's God who will bring us to the wall and through the wall. And when we enter that journey inward, we wrestle with our faith. We questioned. We questioned our faith. We let go of the child, childish faith that got us into these things. And we realize this church taught me these things, but that, that's not actually true as I read the scripture. So we come to, into a new understanding of faith and we have to go, well, what do I believe? Who is Jesus to me? What does the scripture really say? And this for me is where a, a massive uh, empowerment happened because I was, I came back to faith and I went to a class at Vanguard. I had one Bible class and four theater classes. And the professor said, what was the primary message of Jesus? And I had grown up in church my whole life. And I said, I raised my hand like Peter would. And I said, love. And he said, no. And I was like, what? <laughs> and it was like, the, all, my boxes were being broken down. He said, the kingdom of God. I was like, what the heck is the kingdom of God? How did I not know that that was the message? So most of my life these days, and if you've been here long enough, know that all I want to talk about is the kingdom of God. Because that compelled me to hit a wall, to move towards this inward journey, and this great revelation about the primary message of Jesus. For some of you, it will be other things. But the, the journey inward is so important, because then it goes to stage five. Journey outward. Having passed through the crisis of faith, and the intense inner journey necessary to go through the wall, we begin once again to move outward to do for God. For some of us, we do the same things we were doing before, leadership, service, acts of mercy towards others. But the difference now in stage five is that we give out of a new ground, grounded center from God. <clears throat> we have rediscovered God's profound, deep, accepting love for us. A deep inner stillness now begins to characterize our work for God. How many of you guys are, have experienced stage five? And I, I don't want, it's not, these are stages that we go through all the time. Is this helpful? The last stage, which I love, is stage six, transformed into love. God continually sends events, circumstances, people, and even books into our lives to keep us moving forward on the journey. He de is determined to complete the good work he began in us, whether we like it or not. His goal, in the language of John Wesley, is that we be made perfect in love, that Christ's love becomes our love both toward God and others. We realize love truly is the beginning and the end. By this stage, we, uh, the perfect love of God has driven out all fear, and the whole of our spiritual lives is finally about surrender and obedience to God's perfect will. The six stages. <clears throat> I share this with you because all of you are on a unique journey. And you're all in different phases of, of spirituality with Christ. And I want to invite you to see Christianity as a journey forward into Christ-likeness, which means you'll make mistakes, you'll be affirmed, you'll be rebuked. I know that's hard. Can I just say? We're not in a culture of rebuke. Because if somebody preached like I did last week, you might just say, oh, I'm going to go somewhere else, Right? Because we live in that type of transactional community or that, you know, I'll go somewhere else where there's more Bible. I'll go somewhere where there's better worship. I'll go somewhere else where they don't make me stand up there with my eyes closed and my hands open. But, but what we have to recognize is that as we become family, which is the primary metaphor for the church, um, there are times where we are encouraged and we are reproved or rebuked. Is that cool? Having success, um, we'll have success, we'll get it right, we'll get things wrong. Sometimes we're going to reject Jesus, sometimes we're going to deny him, sometimes we will be restored, and sometimes we will be released.
But this is our journey. We're all on a unique journey. So let us honor each other's journey as we move forward in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.